4, 1 Peter chapter 4, we are engaged in a series on faith in times of fear. How, how do we continue to live our lives in faith when there's so much happening around us in our own families, in our own cities, in our own states, our nation, our, our world? And is there a way that we can uh, superimpose um, faith over fear? Or are we going to cave to fear and kind of like rattle in our, our bones as we read the news and we see what's happening around us? And are we going to cave to fear? Or are we going to be the people of faith that God has called us to be in this world that is uh, very quickly uh, moving in the wrong direction? So we have come to believe that every generation, at least this was the heartbeat of a parent, that every generation, that your children would have a better life than you had growing up. You know, as this young lady experienced divorce early on in her life, I experienced the same thing in my family. And it was always my goal and desire that my children would never have to experience what I experienced growing up in a single parent home. And so we not only do this um, relationally, but also financially. We want them to be better financially. We hope they succeed us, uh, you know, successfully, that they exceed where we are. And uh, this, this kind of rang true for a while, but no longer is it true. Uh, this generation that is now emerging, uh, the newest generation has already been labeled as one of the most hopeless generations coming up because life is not getting better. The world is not getting better. In fact, it is unraveling, it is, it is disintegrating. Even within the context of the church, we keep hearing about believers who are, you know, falling away from the faith and moving further away from God. They call it the deconstruction of their faith. And here's why I'm deconstructing, and here's why I don't believe in God anymore, or why I cannot trust God anymore. And so we... Um, we, we discovered this past week in Texas just how far and how wide and how deep sin has actually, actually reached into the human heart. And so suffering is the topic of the day because this is where Peter takes us. Suffering is inevitable in life. Everybody suffers. It's just the question of to the degree of suffering and where that suffering may come from. I could take you through the New Testament and show you 14 different ways that suffering can enter into your life and the various ways that it, it, it affects you and impacts you on a day-in and day-out basis. And so the Bible says, and is explicitly clear, that suffering came into the world because of the rebellious heart of Adam, who was the federal headship of humanity, just as Jesus is the federal headship of the new covenant of God in the kingdom of God through Christ. And when Adam sinned, everything, and I mean everything, was broken. The planet is broken. People are broken. The human heart has been so deeply impacted by sin, and sin has taken such a deep root within us, there is nothing that we are not capable of if we give into the root of sin in the human heart. And so the, the Bible is clear that the problem with humanity is the heart, right? The human heart is the heart of the problem. So this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15. He goes, listen, remember, it is out of the heart that evil thoughts come, that murder comes, and adultery, and sexual immorality, and theft, and false testimony, and slander. These are what defiles a person. And so Jesus says, this is the root cause of the human problem, sin, right? It is rooted and grounded within us, it has permeated our entire being. Jesus came as the rescuer from our infection to sin. Jesus is the only one who can change the heart of humanity. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can cure it? It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> Nobody can, but Jesus can. He can give you a new heart. He takes the heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh and fundamentally begins changing us from the inside out. And so Jesus as our rescuer, he is the king of the kingdom of God who's come to planet earth at least in a, a partial degree at this point 
And you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, as Peter says, we have been chosen by God. God set his love upon us. We responded to that love by faith in Christ. We were baptized into Christ. When Jesus died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was resurrected, you were resurrected into newness of life. And that fundamentally changed us from the inside out. Now, we are exiles. We are traveling through this world. This is not our home. This is not where we set our root base. This is just where we are temporarily so that we can help point people to the only deliverer that can change a life. And it's Christ. In the meantime, all of us encounter suffering. All of us encounter trials. All of us encounter difficulties. And why would this surprise us? And it happens in a variety of different ways. It might be for some of you, right now it's financial. You're looking at the economy, the price of gas, the the amount of inflation that's happening. If you're a senior citizen, you're on a fixed income. You're watching your 401k go to 401f. And you're thinking, am I going to have enough money to last me the rest of my, my life here you know, on earth? Am I going to run out? And so those are, those are struggles that you have. For some of you, it's in the area of you know, physical suffering. You may have some physical problems right now, a, a surgery, an injury, something that is lingering, something that you deal with day in and day out. It might be relational suffering, strained relationships between friends and family. There's a lot of strained relationships in our society because we have hunkered down and bunkered ourselves in and we've decided that everybody's opinion is equal and therefore we just sling it out there on social media and nobody's listening to one another anymore. No one's even trying to communicate anymore. I'm only listening to you so far as I can have a rebuttal to get you to see it my way. If you don't see it my way, you're dead to me. I will unfriend you. I will cancel you. I will eliminate you because I don't want to hear the other side. We're not even trying to come to a solution anymore. There's mental suffering. Some of you are dealing with depression and anxiety and all kinds of issues that are hitting you day in and day out. And for some of you, it is, it is a, a spiritual issue. And you're thinking to yourself, man, where is God in all of this? And why hasn't God showed up? And why isn't God doing anything? And why is he allowing me to go through this valley of my shadow of death in the first place? What good could ever come out of this? And these were all the things that the readers of this letter from Peter were experiencing in their own personal lives day in and day out. He didn't write this letter to a group of people who were just sitting at home having private quiet times, as important as that is. These were folks who were actually struggling and suffering because of their faith. And it started off small. It continued to progress. And by the time that Peter wrote this letter to these churches throughout Asia Minor, Nero was about to take the throne in Rome, and he was going to accelerate their suffering to the degree that people would now begin to lose their lives in the Roman Colosseums simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And he's preparing them, he's getting them ready, and he's saying, listen, times are about to get more difficult, and suffering is going to increase, not decrease. And this is where we are in our day and time. And so it's a way of Peter saying, listen, guys, We need each other. We need to help one another. We need to band together as followers of Jesus Christ because God doesn't want you walking this valley by yourselves. I know that Jesus is with you, but sometimes you just need some flesh and blood. Amen? All right, so when I was diagnosed with cancer and people were saying, you know, that's okay, Pastor Greg, you know, just the strength of the Lord and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you and you you were giving me all these verses and I really appreciated that. I really, really did. But when it's all said and done, it's me and Jesus in that valley together. But it is good from time to time to have flesh and blood come alongside of you and grab your arm and walk with you. Amen. So this is what Peter is trying to do. He's trying to arouse the church to say, look, we have a message of hope that we talked about last week that the world does not have. And if we're going to be influential and impactful with that message, we must do it in the right way. So he says, in essence, and this is on the top of your outline, is really what I call the central idea of the text that we're going to look at that Peter 
gives to his, his listeners and he gives to us. We all need people to live with and a person to live for, and that person to live for is Jesus, right? So here's what Peter says. Listen, life, life does not give you an option. It just doesn't give you an option as to whether or not you're going to suffer in life. You are going to suffer. But life does give you the option as to how you're going to respond to that suffering. Because there are two ways that you and I can respond. One way is helpful, the other very harmful. And so Peter's going to kind of look at both of those options and say, look, God has designed us to go with option two rather than option one. Because option one is just harmful. It's not going to get you what you need. It's not going to provide with you what you want or what you're looking for. In fact, we oftentimes just walk away. This is where people deconstruct in their faith. They just walk away from God angry and bitter and resentful towards him because God did not align himself to what they wanted and how they wanted it. Or option number two, what Paul calls walking in the flesh, or option number two, how we can align ourselves with the Holy Spirit, and regardless of what suffering may come into your life, if you will allow God to leverage it, he will take your misery and turn it into a ministry so that you can impact the lives of others. So those are the two options that you and I have that he's going to counter us with. And so for some of people, you know... um, Life is just like really difficult and complicated, and they've allowed the Lord to take in, as, as um, he says in the, in the very first chapter, he says, man, God can mine gold out of your life. He can, he can take you through valleys, and they are always purposeful in that he is either or, and or he is forging your faith deeper than ever before because you'll never understand how shallow your walk with God is until he puts you in the deepest, darkest valley you've ever been in your life or he is crafting your character. He says he takes everything and he works it together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? To conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so all throughout this letter, Peter keeps holding up Jesus as our example and He holds up the life of Christ and says, now take up your cross and start following Jesus and start responding like Christ responded. And so this is the way that we can respond. Other people, they just see themselves as victims. Like, right, suffering comes into my life. I'm a victim. I've got a story to tell. It's a sad, sad story, and I'll tell everybody my story. You will listen to me. And we love that because it elicits compassion from people. But here's what happens when you stay in the mentality of being a victim. You never move forward in life. You're always chained to that event in the past that where you initially experienced that hurt, but hurt never just remains hurt. Hurt always evolves into anger and to bitterness and to resentment and unto forgiveness, not only towards the people who hurt you, but it can also evolve in unforgiveness to the very God who created you. And when somebody comes along and challenges you in your mentality of victimization, now you get mad at him, right? Hey, leave me alone. You don't understand. You, if you've, walk, you've never walked my shoes, you don't know what it's like for me. And, and uh, we, we just rationalize why we are, we are, you know, just bent on staying in this, this area of brokenness in our lives, and it controls us. And so Peter, he's going to make a contrast. He's going to say, you got one of two options. You can either choose option number one, the walk in the flesh and remain broken, or you can walk in the spirit and find God's healing. And not only do you find God's healing, but once God has healed you and he's crafted your character and forged your faith in a deeper way, he can take what pain came into your life and he can use it to benefit the lives of others. The reason Jesus came into the world and died the death that he died is not because of his sin debt, but because of our sin debt. And he laid down his life for you and I so that we might benefit from his death, burial, and resurrection, that we might experience the newness of life, that we might be guaranteed a place in heaven so that when Jesus comes back, we know that we are leaving this world, we're entering into his presence, and there we will have our bodies glorified and our souls restored and all of the residuals of sin removed and we will experience the complete ultimate healing of Christ as we will be with him for all of eternity. So, 
God challenges us. Here's option number one. Let's read this. You can suffer and sin, all right? You can suffer and walk in the flesh. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That's speaking of spiritually dead. So that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body. But live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now in the first century church, as the church launched, there were a lot of Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, right? They gave their their heart and their life to Jesus as Messiah. Now, when you grew up in a Jewish home, you pretty much, you lived by the law, right? You, you lived by God's word. You were taught from the time you were taught, you know, able to, to maneuver around. that This is what God says. This is what we do. This is what we follow. And so the early church was comprised with a lot of Jewish believers. But then all of a sudden, the gospel went beyond the Jewish community into the Gentile community. And remember, in that day and time, you're the Jew or Gentile. You're the you know, a house of God or not. And so all of a sudden, these new Christians were bringing into the church a lot of baggage with them, right? They weren't used to following God's law. They didn't pray. They didn't care about any of that thing. What they were used to doing is living according to what the Bible calls the flesh, or sometimes your translation might say sinful nature, uh, or uh, he says here, evil human desires is the way that Peter describes it here. And so the flesh refers to your sinful passions that are in rebellion against all authority, right? So you tell me to do something, that's exactly what I'm not going to do. Are you telling me I can't do something? That's exactly what I want to do. Paul said in the book of Romans, this is what the law does. It emboldens our flesh. It's like, don't tell me I can't do something because that's what I'm going to do. So in this letter, Peter's been talking about things like surrender and submission. Who are you surrendering and submitting your life to? Who's the authority that is over you? So as kingdom citizens, we are now in the kingdom of God. Jesus is our king. The Bible is our kingdom manual. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands, which speaks of the entire New Testament. And he says, so I'm not going to live for the flesh because the flesh is all about self. It's about feeling good, but not about being good necessarily. It's about just doing whatever it is I want to do to make me happy, to meet my pleasures. Uh, it's rooted in self. It's not worried about how it's going to hurt somebody else. I just want to get my desires filled. Now, here's the thing about the flesh, because this is where we all came from, right? We brought, when you got saved and gave your life to Jesus, did everything change in your life overnight? Like, boom, you're just like, man, I'm walking with Jesus. He's my authority. I'm going to surrender to his lordship, whatever he tells me I'm going to do. No, not, not at all. Why? The flesh had a big head start on you. Watch, and the flesh is always based on lies, lie-based thinking. So why Paul said in Romans 12 too, listen, if you're going to transform your life, it always begins in one place and one place only in the transformation of the mind. Until the mind is transformed, nothing gets transformed because the way you think affects the way you feel, which affects the way you act. If you want to change your actions, if you don't want to be flesh-driven, emotion-driven, then you must have sound reasoning based on not lies, but truth. And that's what the Spirit of God through the Word of God brings to the table. God's word is truth, rooting out the lie-based thinking that Satan has built mental strongholds in your thought processes that keeps you in slavery to your evil, sinful passions. And this is called sanctification. This is called God growing you in Christ, transforming your life into the image of, of Jesus. And so here are two dangers that I think Peter bears out in these passages. Number one is when you suffer, you can become selfish and lose sight of the suffering that you cause others. Listen, the flesh has no regard for God or anybody else. Flesh is all about me. 
It's all about me. The world revolves around me, and it's about meeting my needs, and, and so on and so forth. So um, suffering people can become very selfish people. They're consumed by their own pain, and then they tend to overlook the pain of others or the pain that they may cause others. And so how many of you, there's somebody you really love or care about, and they've been through some painful event, and they're just not in a healthy place right now? Because the pain has, they're suffering, and maybe it's an ongoing thing, and it's not just something that happened once, and maybe it's a, something they're facing day in and day out, week in and week out, and the pain is very real. But rather than getting themselves healed up and allowing Jesus to fix the pain, they multiply it. And if you try to intervene, you get pushed back big time. I'll give you an example. Many of you and several of you in our church have had sons or daughters who were addicts. Now listen, there's only one thing an addict cares about, their next fix. They will lie to you, cheat, steal, do whatever they have to get that next fix. And as a parent, if you try to intervene, if you try to challenge them, you're going to get pushback, especially if you're a Christian parent. Well, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were supposed to love me. I thought you were supposed to turn the other cheek. I, I thought you were supposed to walk the second mile, give me your cloak. And they're going to use guilt and manipulation in order to stay engaged in their addictive behavior, and they will turn it and spin it and make you appear to be the, the, um, the enemy, Right? And then you feel guilty and you feel shameful and you think, oh my gosh, what, what am I going to do? And so they, they overlook. And this is the danger is when you overlook the pain that you're causing, it's because it's rooted in, it's rooted in selfishness. And then the second danger is this, and we'll flesh these out in a moment a little bit more. When you suffer, you can become entitled. You have this sense of entitlement. Like you just don't know what I've experienced in life. And I think I'm entitled to just kind of wallow in my pain. I think I'm entitled to some things in my life, and you think you have the right to sin. Okay, this is what, this is what Peter tags here, um, because sometimes in the midst of our, our, our hurt, our pain, our suffering, again, that hurt uh, evolves into this anger and bitterness, resentment, and oftentimes, although as a believer, you don't want to admit it, but you're mad at God. And you're frustrated with him, and, and you're, you, you can let a, a root of bitterness spring up within you. Now you begin to justify in your mind why you can do certain things, because after all, God let me down. God didn't show up. God didn't remove what it is I asked him to remove. He didn't do it the way that I expected him to do it. And so Peter gives us kind of a, a uh, checklist here, a diagnostic checklist, and he rattles off some things, and he says, listen, he says, arm yourself with what? The same attitude of Christ. And uh, he says, for you have spent enough time, verse 3, in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. And so he starts rattling off evil human desires. In other words, these are a series of questions I want you to ask yourself. What evil desires dominate you? Well, what do we mean by evil desires? Well, it can mean many things, but it is, it is that sinful, rebellious, destructive side of you that will cause you to make decisions that are extremely unwise, unhelpful, and potentially very harmful. For example, an affair. My husband doesn't understand me. He doesn't pay attention to me. He doesn't love me. And then, therefore, now what begins to happen inside of you, something fundamentally shifts. And the moment there is an, an emotional readiness, I guarantee you Satan will provide you with the bait. It's going to be somebody you work with. It's going to be somebody that you know that's a friendship. Maybe it's an old flame from high school. And then you just start talking, and then all of a sudden Satan whispers in your ear, you know, he really gets you. He, he's really into you. He really understands you. Your husband understands. He understands. And then as time goes on and the conversations get deeper and the emotional attachment begins to happen, now all of a sudden your guard is down, and it then begins to evolve into a full-out 
physical affair between you and someone else. Or it might be that you're angry at your spouse because they had an affair. Now it's revenge uh, that you're seeking after. And so Paul says, listen, this is, this is the flesh that is speaking here. This is the flesh that wants something in return. Be careful. There is a diagnostic tool here that says you're about to cross a line that is going to bring into your life some things that you may not want to have to deal with. Number two, he says debauchery. Which, what, what grotesque things are you fond of? That grotesque things are, what do you have an appetite for? In other words, when you're home alone and nobody's looking and the lights are out and when you are in a particularly weakened condition, what is your go-to? All right? There, there can be many go-tos. For some, it's porn, and porn addiction is huge, multi-billion dollar industry in our society now because it's so easily and readily accessible, and that might be the thing that you go to in order to kind of like, oh, I deserve this. It's been a horrible day. It's been a horrible week, and nobody cares about me, and nobody likes me, and my business is bad, and, and we can come up with a thousand. This is the deceptiveness of our heart. We begin to rationalize why we're about to engage in something something God calls sinful and destructive. And then there's lust. Where, where do you lack restraint? Once you get emotional and passionate and fired up about something, what is your go-to? Where do you lack restraint? Well, Lord, you know, I'm just really hurting right now, and, and this isn't helping, and this isn't helping, and so you're taking your pain, and now you're going to multiply it. And this is exactly what Satan wants. Right, listen, when Satan appealed to Adam and Eve, you know what he appealed to? He appealed to their flesh. He appealed to their emotions, not to their sound reasoning. Why? Because Satan knows that's the most vulnerable point in your life. Because we tend to move with our emotions more than we do with sound reasoning. That's just the way we, we are kind of wired, and God wants to flip that. But that is a process, and if you've not making that level of maturity, so it might be, for example, your lust, your lack of restraint is like you get down on yourself, you go out on a shopping spree, right? This is this retail therapy, and then you come home with a brand new car and a seven-year payment plan. How did I do that? How did this happen in my life? And it's because you were open and you were vulnerable and you were trying to fill a gap that is inside of you. He goes to drunkenness. Where are you prone to addictions? There are a lot of things you can be addicted to. You can be prone to drug addiction, alcohol addiction, all kinds of addictions. But what you're trying to do is you're using the addiction as a coping mechanism to try and heal the brokenness that is inside of you, but it will never heal the brokenness. It only makes it worse. It's the law of diminishing returns. It just doesn't give you what it used to give you. So it takes more and more and more and deeper and deeper and deeper. And before long, if you're not careful, you can, you can self-medicate yourself into, into a destructive lifestyle. He talks about orgies or what sexual sin entices you. And I'm not going to go into all that. You can look it up, you know. Uh, but uh, I will say this because I want to address our church on this because you're reading it in the news concerning the guidepost report regarding sexual abuse in, uh, that has been happening for years in our churches, in our convention. But it's not just our churches. It's every church. It's even in the Amish community. If you don't think so, you're quite naive. However, we voted as a convention to take this very seriously about exposing all of this and putting together a policy and a procedure where we can help those who have been sexually abused because it is one fundamentally one of the most difficult abuses for a person to overcome in their lives. It is a heinous sin, and God addresses it head on. Sexual abuse is not only a barrier to the gospel, it is an attack on the gospel to abuse another person sexually who has been created and made in the image of God is not right. And it, there's, it, it's an attack. It is unthinkable act of darkness, and light dispels darkness, and truth dispels deception. And so the guidepost at least has painfully uh, 
put it out there as to their findings, no holds bar. Our state convention has a task force putting together procedures and policies to help those who are the victims of sexual abuse in our churches. So people, our staff people, are not be shoving off onto other churches so they can perpetuate their problem, but that they actually get help and we get help to those who've been abused. That is fundamentally what Jesus would have us do. So you're reading a lot of stuff. Don't believe everything you read. However, some of the names on that list were, were put out there, and one of which was a individual, I'll not use his name, who helped mentor me in my life and in my ministry, and I am absolutely heartbroken over that. Carousing. What social sins tempt you? What social sins? This is where, you know, you're like, oh, remember we, we used to all boot the selfies. Remember the era of the selfies, the duck lips? You know, you, know, you had the right clothes, everything. You know, you're just really concerned about what other people think about you. Social sins can be things like slander, gossip, detestable idolatry. Which people do you enjoy causing to suffer? And so here's what, here's what Peter says. Listen, if we stop this stuff, if we're not doing this anymore, guess what happens? When you're around people who this is their lifestyle, this is just like their go-to stuff, your very presence, it kind of like confronts them. It, it kind of like judges them. And how they respond to you can be multiple fold, right? They, they may gossip about you. They may slander you. They may write some stuff on Facebook. Uh, they may post stuff on social media. They may unfriend you. They may not invite you to things because you are like, you, you're like the gospel in their face. It's like, why, why don't you do this? Why will you not engage? Why will you not participate in these things any longer? And so he says that it might be that they start maligning you. And listen, God is always, always, always looking for two things. God is always looking for submission, and he's always looking for obedience. You find this all through the Bible, even the Old Testament. When Naaman, you know, he was a general, the Syrian army has leprosy. He finds out there is a prophet of God in Israel who can give him, you know, maybe help him out. He gets there. You don't remember what the prophet said? I want you to go into the Jordan River, and I want you to plunge yourself in that river seven times. What did Naaman say? Yeah, no, no problem, I'll do that. No, 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 no. He said, I, I, what? We have greater rivers than this. I, I'm not going to do that. Finally, a little slave girl talks him into it. He goes, what if he had not gone to the Jordan River and went to another river? He would have died a leper. What if he had only plunged himself three times or four times instead of seven times? He would have died of leprosy. The only reason he experienced the grace of God and healing in his body is because he was willing to surrender and submit himself to the voice of God as echoed through the prophet of God and fully obey what the prophet said to him. And as a result, he came out just as clean as clean could be and his leprosy was absolutely gone. Listen, Jesus is our example. He shows us what it means to walk in the spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh. Now watch this. When you're suffering, you can either think only of yourself or you can think about Jesus and others. And so what Peter challenges us here in the, these verses is before you and I can be victims, we have to confess to ourselves that we're villains. Let that sink in a minute. See, it, it's real popular in our day and time. Uh, let me tell you about all my suffering and what a victim I am. And I would say, well, okay, well, we can talk about that. But before we talk about that, I want, you, I want to give you some new perspective. Because you weren't always the victim, you were the villain. Who were you the villain against? Jesus. <laughs> Whose who's, who's sin did Jesus die for? His or yours? Were you the victim or were you the villain in that plot against him? We are absolutely the villain. And Jesus came and his suffering was caused not by himself, but by us. Now, here's what we like to do. Going back to what he says, which people do you enjoy causing to suffer? Here's what we do. I see this all the time. We love to expose other people's sins, but we don't want to expose our own. 
I've never been to picketers at a gay pride parade or any other thing they're picketing against, any other sin issue, those who are holding up signs with very derogatory words concerning those who are doing the sinning, but I don't see them carrying signs that says, by the way, while I'm pointing out and while I'm exposing your sin, uh, I might have failed to tell you I'm a, I'm a husband, uh, wife abuser, and I cheat on my taxes, and I'm an alcoholic, and I've got all these other sin issues in my own life. I feel glad about pointing out your sin, but I will cover up and conceal my own. This is the same thing Jesus faced when the woman caught in adultery was plunged at his feet and he looked at those who were perpetrators and saying, listen, the law says she needs to be stoned. Let Let us point out her sin for you to see and everyone else. And Jesus said, okay, big boys, whoever's without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. See, this is what I see happening in our country and coming out of our churches. Now, what we do is we just fundamentally shut off the ears of the very people we have been called to reach. Love to point out their sin, but man, don't point out mine. And we all got enough of our own, amen? Amen. Peter says there's another option that's much more It's a much more um, Christ-honoring option that results in something far better. So option number two is you can suffer and serve. You can suffer and serve. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. Above all... Uh, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Eh, Circle that, without what? Grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering the grace, God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength of, that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power of the Lord forever and, and ever. And so notice he talks about The end of all things. Now, we tend to think of time in terms of days, months, years, decades. God doesn't think in time in those terms. God thinks in time in only two ways, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. This is the way you find the Bible laid out. In the first coming of Christ, he came as the Lamb of God to come take away the sin of the world. Jesus died. He was buried. He was resurrected. He ascended back into heaven. The second coming of Jesus is where he comes back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He doesn't come back as the Savior of the world. He comes back as the Judge of the world, and he will gather up Satan and all of his minions and cast them into a pit. He will establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand year reign, Satan is loose for a season. He is soundly defeated, thrown into Gehenna, the lake of fire. And then the great white throne judgment comes where all unredeemed humanity will stand before Christ and be judged. The books will be open and they too will spend eternity in that lake of fire with Satan and his, all of his minions. And so then Jesus Peter, 2 Peter says God will destroy the present heavens and earth. He will recreate them, a void of all sin and all of sin's effect. The new Jerusalem will come down to planet earth and be the capital city of God's kingdom. And there we will rule and reign with Christ for all of eternity. In other words, you you have jobs to do. You have things you're doing. You're not going to sit up there strumming a harp, singing badly all throughout eternity. Nobody wants to hear that. All right, so... (laughs) If you stood next to me, you understand. So what Peter says is this. Hey, 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 let's allow the Spirit of God to impact our heads, our hearts, and our hands. And so how does he attack the head? He says, stay calm in spirit and pray. Now, the the opposite of clear-minded is drunk-minded, right? He's already talked about this uh, being sober-minded, as opposed to drunk-minded. I mean, have you ever had an argument with a drunk person? As a drunk person, I had a lot of arguments with people. But if you've ever had an argument with a drunk person, how did that go? Like, did they, were they rational in their thought processes? And did you really come to a conclusion? No. It gets loud. It gets, it, 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 there's crying involved. There's 
uh, profanity involved. There's all kinds of things that, that are happening and involved. And so what Peter is saying is, listen, our culture is mentally kind of drunk. It's like communication is instant. It's constant. It is permanent. And when you get hurt and when you are suffering, when people are all emotional about something and they're just all revved up emotionally, they tend to move with their emotions rather than sound thinking. Therefore, um, we tend to lack self-control. And so you get into an argument with somebody and you lack self-control and it's no holds bar. I mean, it's just like, I see this on Facebook all the time. I've watched friends, those who were friends and become no friends because, you know, they just lost self-control. They got into this argument on social media and, and it happens all the time. And it's an epidemic of brokenness in our society. And so in Galatians, Paul says, listen, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of the flesh, not the fruit of you. The fruit of the spirit is self-control. And so when we learn to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, it is then and only then we learn how to bring ourselves under the authority of God in this area of self-control in our, in our lives. And so I'm submitting, I'm submitting myself to this. We live in a society that says what we need is less authority. Let, let's, less authority, let's defund the police, let's, let's get rid of the authorities over us. If we have less authority over us, people will behave themselves. Really? How's that working for us in the cities they've done that? Listen, the only way we can have less rehabs, less prisons, less police officers, less military, is if people learn how to live in self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, and the only way you have the Holy Spirit is because you have Jesus ruling and residing in your heart where he fundamentally is making changes and he's moving you and progressing you into more and more likeness of Jesus Christ. Even those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long, long time struggle with this issue of self-control in our lives as we have looked at the list that Peter gave us earlier. And so what Peter says is, listen, when you're hurting, you're frustrated, you're emotional, and you start praying, there's a couple of things this helps you do. Number one, it helps you to verbally process what's happening in your life. This is what the book of Psalms is all about. It's about somebody who's going through a deep valley, David and others, and they're feeling it, they're experiencing it, and they're just processing it. They're, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're putting it all out there before God and say, God, you know, this and this and this and this. But when you, if you keep reading the psalm, by the time you get to the end of it, now all of a sudden God begins to fundamentally change them from the inside out and their complaining moves from complaint to worship. That's the head. It's, we got to get the head on straight and then it comes down to the heart. Stay fervent in love for one another. He doesn't say to like everyone. Because you can't like everyone. Even if you like somebody, you don't like them all the time. It's called marriage. <laughs> Babe, I, I liked you yesterday, but today you're really on shaky ground. And by the way, I was quite uh, taken back by how quickly you all ratted me out to my wife last week as I shared some things in her absence. I don't like you anymore. Liking someone is intermittent, but loving someone is consistent. Liking someone is predicted, predicated upon their conduct. Loving somebody is predicated upon their character. And so what Peter challenged us early, he says, this is a fervent love. This is a love that says, I am committed to this relationship regardless. I will love you as Christ loved the church and so it says, I am fundamentally committed to this relationship. So we move it from our head. We, we sort through our suffering because we want God to help us in the midst of this to forge our faith and to craft our character, to be more like Jesus so that we love more fervently like Christ loved. Even though people gave him pushback, even though his family, his own family thought he was nuts at one time and tried to do an intervention, he never gave up on the relationships 
as long as he was able to have interaction. And then it moves down to our hands. He says, be hospitable towards one another. That's inviting people into our lives because here's, here's what happens with some people. Some people, when they suffer, like, you know, they, they don't mind getting it out there. They don't mind finding a counselor, finding a Christian friend to help them through that. But a lot of people, they're just the opposite. They isolate. They're like a turtle in a shell. They withdraw. They isolate. You try to email them. You try to text them. You, you try to call them. They don't respond to you because they're trying, to, they're trying to work this out on their own. And somebody hurt me, and I'm not going to get hurt again. And they put up all their walls of defense. And so what Paul is saying, or Peter is saying, is listen, we have to look for those individuals in the body of Christ who have been severely hurt. And when they start withdrawing, we need to interact into to their lives, not, not to try to correct them, but to help them journey through that, that valley so they don't isolate, they don't withdraw. And as I've shared with you before, when I entered in my journey with cancer, um, you know, I started journaling and I started blogging and my wife is like, look, you got to talk to somebody. You, you've got to talk to some people. You, you can't do this on your own. You can't, you can't withdraw in your shell like you normally do. You've got to get this stuff out there. And this is what the body of Christ is all about, right? It's helping one another. It's not me saying, hey, come on, you know, if you really had faith, you could just like, in all things Christ strengthens me. And, you know, and in, my, in my weakness, I'm, God's perfecting my power. And those may be fundamental truths of God's word, but there are times when every single person struggles and needs help. You need to find the help. Stop going at it alone. And notice he says this hospitality thing, like without complaining. We love our complaining, don't we? Yeah, we do. That's what Israel did with uh, Moses for 40 years. They just grumbled, complained. If I'd been Moses, I, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't have made it because I would have killed somebody. It was just, it just happened. Here's the next hand, wrapping this up. Keep serving one another. He says, man, God's given you certain gifts and insights and abilities. God has is, God is taken you through certain valleys, and I shared with you mine last week about things that I can, I can tag and talk to people about because I've been there, I've done that, I've walked through that valley, and if you allow God to take your hurt, your pain, your suffering, and revolutionize that in your life to build the faith and the character qualities and the love for people who are going through the exact same thing, God can use you in such powerful ways to help somebody else as they take the same journey you just got out of or got out of years ago. And by the way, when you're sharing your journey, you don't always share your success stories. Sometimes you fail miserably as you're trying to journey your way through your suffering and your pain. Well, it's just about being honest, right? It's like, you know, I did this, this, and this. It was not helpful. I'm telling you, it was not helpful. I tried to self-medicate. It was not helpful. I, I tried to do these certain things. It was not helpful at all. And so Jesus used his suffering to serve us and to invite us in the spirit to use our suffering to serve others. And remember, Peter says we're to clothe ourselves in sympathy and compassion and love and hospitality. This is the art of Christian friendship. And so it brings us down to the last point, and I'm just going to rattle these off. This is what it means to be a steward of your life. God is the owner of all things. We are the steward of everything God has given to us. All right? So we want to steward our pain and our suffering well. Like if God gives me a job, it's like, God, how can I do this job the best I can? Or maybe you own a company. How can we be the most influential com company for the kingdom of God? Or, 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 you know, you have kids, you have a, a wife or a husband. Lord, how can we steward this well? Even in your suffering, you want to steward it well so that God maximizes what it is you've encountered in life and what God has shown you and taught you and, and changed you fundamentally so that he can use you. There is a godless stewardship that says, I'm the owner and the steward of my life, right? This is like, I'm self-made, independent. I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. I've done it all. It's all about me. Or there is that of selfish Christian, like I'm the owner. God's the steward of my life. This is like the health, wealth, gospel thing. It says, you know, if I prayed the prayer of faith and sowed the seed, God owes me, right? He's got to come through for me. And what this fundamentally leads to is a lot of people angry and bitter at God because he didn't do what you told him to do, right? So he's not your cosmic bellboy. He's not your butler. 
And then there's the lazy Christian. God's the owner and the steward of my life, right? God's in charge. He just does everything. It's like the farmer sits in his, his living room and says, well, you know, um, God give me crops while I'm in my lazy boy. Uh, so th- listen, why do we do this spiritually? We say, God, I don't understand why I'm not growing. I don't understand why my life isn't changing because you're not putting forth any effort. Yes, God is the owner, but you are the steward. You have to put forth the effort. You got to get time in God's word. You got to spend time in prayer. You got to spend time in meditation on God's word. You got to put it into practice before anything. Listen, if the mind doesn't change, nothing fundamentally changes in your life. And that is up to you. God's given us everything we need through the Holy Spirit and the word of God to fundamentally change us and to move us into option two instead of option one but we have to put forth the effort so a godly christian god is the owner and i am the steward of my life now for the unbeliever when they suffer most people they they just get angry and bitter and resentful and you have probably been the recipient of all of that emotional turmoil inside of them but as followers of jesus christ god gives us a better Option. Now, I will say this in closing. There is a demonic component for us. Listen, Satan wants nothing more than to ruin your testimony. All right, so he's going to come at you with both barrels, especially in the midst of your suffering. He's going to hammer your mind with all kinds of lies in order for you to become angry and disappointed with God and you're angry at him and you're, you just don't think you're getting a fair deal so that you, rather than being a trophy of his grace, you become a trophy of disgrace. And so if you find yourself grumbling against God, getting angry and bitter towards him, that's just a reminder that Satan is at work in your life. Do not let him have a foothold. Because once he gets a foothold, he gets a stronghold. Once he gets a stronghold in your mind, he grabs hold of your life. Because your, heart, your head starts changing your heart, which starts changing your hands. Not for the better. So Jesus challenged us to take up our cross and follow him. When we suffer, we suffer like he did. He suffered for our benefit. And now we can suffer and allow God use our suffering to benefit others. Isn't this really what Memorial Day is all about? Those who willingly sacrifice their lives for the benefit of others? And Peter is saying, how about we as kingdom citizens do the same? We have a message of hope that the world has not have. We have a healer. His name is Jesus. The world cannot provide. We have the Holy Spirit that the world cannot even begin to entertain. We have an enemy who is real, and you better believe he's real. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We can make a huge, huge difference if we choose option number two. Let's pray.